All right, so <laughs> in three, two, one. Welcome to Local Universe Podcast, everybody. My name is Graham Hutter, and today, joining me here live in the story hole, is my very good friend here, Will Farino. Will, what's going on, man? Not much, man. Uh, same thing as most days. Very sticky, very sweaty, a little bit bevved up, and feeling a little fast and loose today. It's a fast and loose episode here of the Local Universe Podcast, and I agree with you. It is late July. It's a sticky time here in southeastern Connecticut. And joining us from her very own home studio, also in Connecticut now, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, if you care, she moved, is my very own sister, Emily Hutter. Emily, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Ready for this fast, loose, easy, breezy episode. Uh, if you guys know, I was living in Boston for a while, living in, uh, an apartment setup, and now I have moved to the, I'm gonna say white wine woods of Connecticut, and it's nice. W. It's pretty nice. I'm glad to hear you. Make sure you don't forget the bug spray, Emily. I know oh. the mosquitoes this time of year are brutal out there. Oh, man. I got ticks between my toes. I got ticks in my armpits. I got mosquito bites on my toes. There's no winning, but it's all good. Just your toes, though? I have a mosquito bite on my right butt cheek that Ooh. I thought was a, a pimple for the longest time, so I've been trying to pop it. Ah. Oh, they can get through fabric, man. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's yeah. the thing. I sit on my little... Uh, the folding lawn chair, you mm-hmm. know, that you go to your Jimmy Buffett concerts and whatnot. Sure, like a camp mm-hmm. chair? Yeah. yeah. And they just fly right under and they pop right up and yep. get you. Yep. Wow. Relentless. Well, well f- speaking of brutality and blood, today we have a fast and loose episode for you today that is um, honestly pretty harrowing, but it's short, but still harrowing. Um. Will knows a lot more about it than I do. So, Will, why don't you start us off with a bit of a far-out fun fact of the day. Well, so far-out fun fact, I don't have one, but I was curious about what's going on in everybody's lives. I thought we'd do a little catch-up. It has been a little while since we've all sat down and recorded together. So, let's start with uh, Dr. Emily. What's... I know you've just moved, you're in a new house, but what's your local universe like these days? Oh man, my local universe, I was talking about bugs before, the tiny ones. My local universe has been filled with bugs larger than anything I have seen before. Like, for the last 10 years, eh, probably, I've been living in Boston for like two years, but 10 years prior, I was living in the meth woods of Connecticut. Now I'm in the white wine woods. I was in the meth woods of Connecticut. And those bugs were tiny. You know, you had your, your, your mosquitoes, you had your ticks, you had your spiders, your spoodlers, you had the normal things. But now, guys, now, are you familiar with what a Dobson fly is? Oh, yeah, I'm very familiar oh, with the yeah. fly. Is, is that different from a horsefly? It is. These oh, are Satan's butterflies. These have flown directly out of the pits of hell and onto my home. Look at your... You, you both have large hands. Take a look at your middle finger. Just look at it. 
from all angles. That is the size of these. Th Graham, you got stubby hands. But Will's fingers, that is the body of these things. They it's are... monkey fingers. Well, the, the Dobson fly is large. They are big. They have these big wings and they got these mean looking jaws. And they are just like, yeah, Graham, you put two of your fingers together, roughly the size. I got um, stubby hands, you okay? It's okay. Folks, stubby yet strong. Yeah. <laughs> Girthy. The thick. I have machinist's hands. <laughs> you do. You do. Uh, but these things are absolutely wild. I had no idea what I was looking at initially. They look like something out of a, a Halloween store, to be honest. Um, I've also been seeing moths roughly the size of my hand. They're... Those for, are big. For, I do have big hands. Um, so I meant the moths, but that was an indictment on yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's yourself. fine. I also have machinist hands. Um, but where I'm going with this is... <laughs> come from the same stock. <laughs> we do. There has been an insect too large to kill in every single one of the rooms of our home for the past roughly week. I mean too large to kill. Did you try to reason with it? No, I have to. There's, these things are so big that number one, if I try to kill it, the mess will be too big. And number two, if I try to kill it and miss, this thing will remember me and find where I sleep. So we if just you're have- to shoot for the king, you better not miss. Exactly. That's, those are the rules. Exactly. So we just have roommates, pets, not sure. And when we're not dealing with the pets, uh, there's also an ant colony that has decided that our home, and I don't know whether to be flattered or concerned about this, um, an ant colony has decided that our house is a cemetery. So they've been trucking their corpses in, dumping them in the living room, and tracking back out. So I'm not sure if we live in a sacred ant place or in a uh, desolate wasteland type cemetery setup. Uh, but either way, it has been Emily versus the insects for the last month. Seems like they really misunderstood the concept of the living room, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Graham, what's going on in your local universe? Spiders. It's all spiders. All the way down. Um, <laughs> no, my, my, my garden is full of spiders. My house is full of spiders. My basement that we are certainly currently sitting in here is full of spiders. Uh, I can't see them. They come out when they like to, and they are everywhere. No, but beyond that, though, everything else has been pretty great. We're down here on the coast where I am, and uh, you know the garden is doing well, except for the spiders. Um, a lot of cukes and zooks coming out this mm, year. Mm. Um, otherwise, I've been trying to get out on the boat when I can, and I've caught a couple of mackerel so far this year. Nice. There's a big mackerel run happening right now, I think, in the... It's Fisher's Island Sound area. Holy mackerel. <laughs> Holy mackerel is right. They are delicious, and they are one of the lowest mercury fish out there. Wow. Which is pretty interesting. So they're actually very healthy and uh, high in omega-3 fatty acids, higher than salmon even. So wow. I have done my research on mackerel and have eaten two of them this season. So, oh, look at you. so far, so good. Um, beyond that, though, you know, doing a podcast. You knew that already. Um, <laughs> still here, still good. How you doing, Will? Oh, I'm great. Uh, I've got something big coming up next week. What is it? No, uh, I'm. Uh, I've got a colonoscopy. <gasps> you got a colonoscopy? Yeah, Whoa, getting up in there. Yeah, More nice. like down low, right? Hey, hey. Down low. hell yeah. yeah. My asshole's gonna be famous. It's gonna be on TV. Why are you getting a colonoscopy prior to forty? 
Um, oh, so it's a colonoscopy and an endoscopy. I've, I was having some tummy issues for a bit, and mm-hmm. uh, I went to the doctor and was like, hey, I've got stomach aches every now and then, um, blah, 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 you know, yada, yada. And they were like, all right, well, we're going to shove a camera up your ass, and we're going to see what's going on. We're also going to take a piece of your stomach. So, you know, get ready for that. Is that called a gastrotomy? Uh, and I think that's what the endoscopy is, oh. is when they're going in, because th- they're going to go through my map. Oh, are they, they going to kiss in the middle? By cameras. <laughs> yeah, kind of. But the, the, the mouth same camera, I, I don't know about the same time. I'm just assuming because, you know. Why not? You're already under. Time is twofer. Yeah. yeah. Plus, you know, I'm a big girl. I can take it. But I believe that the the one that's going in my mouth is the camera, and they're they're gonna take like a a little piece of tissue. As long as it's not the same one, like a biopsy. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly, like a little biopsy. Wow. Um, Yeah, so that's that's exciting. It's gonna be my first time going under. Ooh. Um, How do you feel? Are you nervous? No, honestly, I'm more nervous about the prep. (gasps) Yeah. Oh. Yeah, you're gonna shit yourself for about three days. Oh yeah, um, man, that I feel like I can deal with. I, you know, you'd be totally. You're gonna be very hungry going under. Yeah, that, that that's, that's the big thing for me is is not being able to eat. Um, when I had my appendix out, that was that was a part of it. Yeah, so I, I'm not looking forward to that part. But the rest of it, you know, I get to miss work. <laughs> can you give us an update on the next podcast, like how you're doing, what the process was? Because yeah, absolutely, we're asking what your local universe is. That's, that's your local ecosystem. Local. Yeah, that's local as shit, right there. Literally. Literally. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. But yeah, you know, maybe like next episode, we'll you know, if I get the footage, we'll do a link dump. <gasps> and we'll, we'll put that in there. Yes. You guys can see what my insides look like. Oh, that's nice. That'll be fun. That's content yeah, right we there. We don't use. We don't use social media anywhere near as much as we could be. No, we don't. But we can we'll and make we an should. Instagram, and our first and only post will be my ass. <laughs> the inside way of your up ass. Inside, though, so yeah. it's wait, not wait. So like, nothing's gonna get flat. Not explicit. Exactly. Yeah. Throw a nipple yeah. on there too, just to protest. Mm-hmm. Damn right. But I mean, apart uh, apart from my what's going on with my butt. Uh, <laughs> I've got two lovely turkeys that are growing up, and they're becoming adults, and they're adorable. I love them. They're my little feather puppies. Oh That's God. what I call them. What are their names? Dill and Pickle. Oh, my God. No. Yeah. Oh. Dill's the girl. Pickle's the boy. Oh, my gosh. No. Do they come when they're called? When they're called? Uh, not really. They do respond to their names, Um, but I, I love it, because every, every morning when I get up to go to work, I go over to their coop area, and open that up to let them out and they all chase me through the yard <laughs> until i get to my truck oh and then when i get to my truck they go they do their own thing and they eat and forage and turkey stuff yeah make their little noises that's so sweet well that's fun i can't wait to meet them. oh dude they're great i was over at um, tractor supply this afternoon and i was of course just staring at the chicks for way too long and they're just so perfect they're so cute oh my god I, oh God, I just want to take, and I understand why they're in a barrier, because I would just steal them all, put them in my shirt, leave without paying. I've always oh, loved yeah. the little ducklings. Yeah. yeah, I want ducks so bad. I also want a goose. Duck, duck? Do ducks and geese get along? I don't know. I don't know. We'll find out. I will. <laughs> so this has been your far out fun fact of the week. Uh, do we have anything for accountability corn this week? After you. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, so I, I had, 
Fast and loose. Let's do accountability corner another time. All right. <laughs> this hereby concludes accountability corner for this week, ladies and gentlemen. And that brings us to today's fast and loose content. We're really shooting from the hip here today. Um, I have another big, big episode, maybe two coming up for you next time around. And so today we're talking about something that's in a similar vein. Will did a lot of the, I'll call it medium weight lifting mm-hmm. for, <laughs> for today to get together something that is worth listening to. But essentially the next two to three weeks are going to be all about the deep sea. And we're not just talking about Will's colonoscopy. Oh! That is a deep sea, Emily. Good one. Um, <laughs> a deep B. It's going to be about people going places they shouldn't be and how we can screw that up, essentially. And uh, from here on out, I'm going to hand the mic over to Will, and I will hereby know only very little about what is about to happen here. So buckle up, drop in. And uh, get ready to get pressurized for months on end. Over to you. All right. Now that we're all decompressed, let's get into this one. (laughs) So today I wanted to talk about something called the Bifur Dolphin Incident. Uh, Which sounds cute and fun. It does. It sounds like it could be a great thing, but it wasn't. Um, Fortunately, unfortunately, no dolphins involved in this story. Uh, the Bifurd Dolphin was a, uh, a semi-submersible oil rig, deep sea oil rig, uh, that was owned by, was owned by Dolphin Drilling, which is a Norwegian company. They're based at, they were based out of Oslo. Now they're in Scotland, yada, yada. But basically they had this massive oil rig that they named the Bifurd Dolphin. Uh, they built it in the 60s, which was a big boom for all of the deep sea technology. And we'll talk about that a lot more next week as well. Yes. But yes. the 1960s were essentially the what we have in our time period as tech boom, they had in deep sea technology engineering as a boom in the early 1960s. You've probably never heard of. Yeah. I mean, I honestly didn't really know anything about it until hearing about this stuff and looking into it now with these massive oil rigs that go down hundreds of meters when something does break or need maintenance down there often they'll send a robot or a little submersible down there to try and do things but these pieces of equipment just aren't as responsive and agile as a human would be now, is the sort of work they'd be doing mostly welding and riveting and stuff and just repairing parts that are holding the whole rig up? Or Yep, yes, absolutely. So welding, rigging, uh, running lines, anything that, like that, that they, they just need that human input. And this is called saturation diving. What they do is, well, here, let me bring it back. So where we are on land just existing, that is one atmosphere of pressure yep mm-hmm. where these divers have to go is so far down that it is nine atmospheres of pressure for reference one atmosphere of pressure underwater i think i mentioned this during the mel fisher episode is about 33 feet 
of, of seawater above you. So nine atmospheres of pressure puts these guys pretty far down. It puts you around 270 plus feet below the surface is the pressure you're working at there, which is unsustainable to say the least. Yeah. And in order for a human to go down that far and come back up, I mean, if you got to look at it from a money standpoint, you're not going to have your underwater welder go all the way down there, pressurize, and then spend all that time decompressing just to have another issue pop up tomorrow where you got to send them back down. So what they would do is they had a diving bell. These people, the, the welders, the underwater welders would go down in this diving bell all the way down till they were at that nine atmospheres of pressure. And then they would do their work. And then up on top of the oil rig, they had this pressurized habitat that was basically three cylinders laying horizontally that are connected by slightly smaller cylinder hallways. So it was like a hyperbaric chamber that they would just live in? Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. So they had their own little pod, I guess you want to call it. You know, they had... Dorm. It honestly yes. sounds like a 60s style house. Yeah, yeah. It's, like... it's kind of like a little... <laughs> did they have a sunken living room? Oh, hey, man. I well, guess they did. Eh, we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. <sighs> so... So these guys would be in the, these nine the nine atmospheres of pressure for up to three months at a time. Whoa. They would come in for their shift, for their 90 days of work. They would pressurize, go down, work for maybe eight hours, however long that they're... Uh, eight hours is just black water? Yeah, pitch black. The only, the only time you can see is when you light up the torch to weld. Ah! Yeah, that nightmare. is horrific. Oh, and to make things even That's worse, true fear. yeah, when you're at that depth, you can't just you can't just have an oxygen tank. They, uh, I think it was nitrox. called yes, that's it, yeah. nitrox. Yeah, so it was this nitrogen helium oxygen yeah mixture. I've heard about this. Which tri gas is what it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that mixture would make it one really hard to talk almost impossible to talk so these guys would have to wear a basically a voice descrambler so they could communicate with each other while doing that and the helium that was in that mixture would sap all of the heat out of your body so you are down there it's hard you can't see you can barely talk and you're constantly floating around with a chill that sounds horrible Oh, yes. And exceedingly dangerous. Incredibly dangerous. I was actually... Uh, the, oh, sorry. Go on. Would the helium make their voice higher? Yeah, that, that was, that's pretty much why they had to have the descrambler, because <laughs> with, with that whole mixture, their voice would be this incomprehensible, incompre- high-pitched thing. I can't see how, anything down here! No, but how, Someone hand me a wrench! How do you basically communicate? How do you even survive? With that for eight hours at a time. Um, money? Yeah, actually, that's the, that's the key right there, Lots money. These guys money? get paid a bunch. They right? make, at this time, they were making around $1,400 American per day. I'd still want more, but that's 1960s money. Yeah. Uh, no, you said 1400 1983 money, right? 1983, yes, yes. Yeah, so this... This whole incident takes place in 1983. About $4,289 a day. 
for three for three months of work that's starting to come into quid pro quo territory that's kind of reasonable yeah and the way that they would do it is they would have so in this particular incident there were four divers they would work in teams of two and rotate out there would be two guys on for five days and then the other guys would swap out for another five days and you're just stuck in that cylindrical dorm yeah for for five days oh yeah yeah so while you're not working you're just in the you're in that little chamber yeah, reading a book. They had a little port that they would put the food and books, stuff imagine, like that. Imagine in. feeling isolated from the other guys on the offshore oil rig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. yeah. So these four guys are stuck in there. And there's like 120 other people on the rig just doing all the other work that needs to be done. Like actually drilling? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so they've got their little chamber. They got the diving bell. Now, when the diving bell comes up, in order to get into the chamber, there's this thing called the trunk, which is like a collapsible hallway that they will uh, kind of like uh, at an airport. The um, mm, the gangway, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, let's yeah. call it that. That kind of how it's like that. That comes out, sticks onto the plane. Same same basic principle, except it's airtight. The, yeah, this one is airtight. It pressurizes. And that allows the divers to leave the diving bell, go into the habitat, and continue doing this. Because in order to properly decompress from this sort of environment and this work, it would take about two weeks of just sitting in a decompression chamber. Two weeks? Yes. Well, how long do you have to take per safety stop? So, traditionally, if you're scuba diving... Now, I've never... For the record, done, not nitrox. Not, yeah. Done tri gas. I've never done anything deeper than about a hundred feet, um, and even then, you still have to take five to ten minutes every thirty feet on the way back up, and that takes most of the dive. But if you're going to that depth, I don't know if it's a linear or an exponential relationship to how long you have to take. But I can tell you that the deepest scuba dive ever was about eleven hundred feet, and it took the guy well over ten hours to get back up. But it took him about 15 wow. minutes to get down. So, <laughs> you know, a long time. Two two weeks. Yeah. Decompre- is it just because you've been at that pressure for so long? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, you have been at that pressure for at least 90 days. Yeah. If you're working a full, let's, let's call it a contract. So we know that when people are exposed to less gravity over time, we do see negative impacts on their body, right? They have, um, I think their their tendons are a little looser, their bones are less dense. You see that sort of stuff. Um, do you know what negative or just general impacts there are on the human body when you're compressed for that long? I think it's negligible if it's done correctly. If it happens too Even fast... If- big problems that happens to well, slowly, yeah. I don't think there's that big of an issue. Um, but I, I, I just don't know. This is one of those things. It's only been really one generation since this technology has even existed. So, yeah. And actually I found a uh, saturation diving was, a uh, was because of the U S Navy. The Usnavi. Interesting. Yeah, Usnavi. They were the ones that started it up in 1960. Cause I don't know. CIA reasons. I had to send a lot more guys down and <laughs> yeah. then want to, yeah, interesting. Well, and also, I, I quickly set that up. So in today's money, if you were to do a 90-day 
tour. So three months on something like this, making forty five hundred ish dollars a day. You said Emily, forty two. Yeah, uh, forty two. Okay, so if it was forty five, you'd be making four hundred thousand dollars in three months. But you're earning every kind dollar. You're earning it, but yeah. like, if you're gonna be terrorized for a quarter of a year, <laughs> every year, half a million dollars almost is kind of almost what I would do that for, to be honest. Oh yeah, it would have to take. I mean, more would be better. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I I understand the appeal of that. We're talking three hundred and seventy-eight thousand if we make it to forty-two hundred dollars a day. But wow, still, that's that's a lot of money for three months of work. However, like like you had asked Emily, it, the job does have massive wear and tear on the body. It is, it it just tears these guys apart. That's why they only do it for like three months at a time. Apart from having to fight off decompression sickness, the bends, mm. they're are there's a multitude of other things that can affect you being at that pressure for so long it can it'll cause dizziness uh there will be cognitive issues that you can have neurological issues it's it's a very delicate situation to be in it's almost like humans aren't supposed to be at the depth you almost yeah we're just almost not, like we're not naturally we're just not designed for that yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, so speaking of. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so, one day, in 1983, there was what is now known as the Biford Dolphin Incident, or accident, or horror story, depending on who your source is. And, and how much detail you go into. Yeah. <laughs> so, this happened Saturday, it was a Saturday morning, around 4 a.m. in November, in 1983. Where was this rig located, by the way? So this was in the Frigg gas field, which was in the North Sea. Mm. Uh, so, like, you're... Somewhere in between Scotland and Norway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The team of divers that they had, there were two guys, there were two British guys and two Norwegian guys, and then there were two British guys that were the uh, the dive handlers, basically the guys that connect the trunk to the habitat so that the guys can get from the diving bell. Yada, yada, yada. They bring the pizza rolls to the basement so the boys can keep playing their games. I exactly, get it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, there were the two British divers. We had Edwin Arthur Coward, or Coward. It's spelled Coward, but... Let's go with Coward for the I'll sake watch. of the story. Having Coward. this job, I doubt this guy exactly. was Coward, so... <laughs> Unless it's fine. ironic. Yeah. Edwin Arthur, massive balls. Uh, <laughs> he was 35 years old then there was roy p lucas 38 years old and then we had our two norwegian folks uh bjorn giver bergensen bergerson uh he was 29 he was the youngest and then there was trolls helvik who was 34 and then they were assisted by their two dive tenders william cramond who was 32 years old and then martin saunders which i was not able to find his age so like screw that guy so, but but these guys, to, so to speak, were veteran divers. Yes, they've. Well, at thirty-eight, one guy like he's probably been doing this for twenty years. 
right. right? Yeah, he, at least diving 15, for that long. 10 years, maybe. I don't know. He's not new at this, likely. Yeah. Yeah, they were they were a pretty seasoned crew. I'm just getting defensive at calling people in their 30s now, old at this point. <laughs> and I'm defense. I'm... I'm not upset about it, but I understand why people in their 30s get upset when they're considered old. You just turned 30, Emily. You should know how to do something pretty well by now. We're working on it. I know. Yeah. I threw out my back trying to pee the other day, so. (laughs) (laughs) And Will's 29. Yeah. (laughs) You're old enough to die on an oil rig. I am. I am. Yay. Old enough for something. <laughs> Old enough for something. So, our British boys yeah. were down there doing their job, and they came up in the diving bell. Now, the normal procedure for going from your diving bell into the habitat would be you close the diving bell door, which would have been open up to the trunk. So diving bell comes up, attach the trunk, open the diving bell door then you would slightly increase the pressure in the diving bell in order to seal the bell door tightly. Mm -hmm. Then you close the chamber door so that the habitat and the trunk are cut off from each other so that that pressure can build inside the trunk to get up to where it has to be for you to safely go into the dry habitat. It's got to be terrifying every single time. Oh, I can't even imagine. Then you would slowly depressurize the trunk until it reached the pressure of one atmosphere. Oh, sorry. You close the, you, so you leave the trunk, you close the chamber door, and then you have to depressurize the trunk until it reaches that one atmosphere. And then you can open it up and separate the diving bell from the habitat. Now, in this incident, our boy, Mr. William Cremond, one of the dive tenders, uh, they they had successfully accomplished the first two steps. Now, something happened, whether it was Cremond jumping the gun or mechanical malfunction, we'll figure that out later on, the chamber was opened too early. So the, 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 the trunk had, it had not been sealed off. So the nine atmospheres of pressure inside of that habitat that had three of the divers in their little chamber and then one diver right there by the door. So one guy had already traversed into the habitat at this point? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so as the second guy going in, yes. something became unsealed. Yes, so point. as the second guy that went in was closing the door to seal that, Cramond had unsealed the trunk. Now, the nine atmospheres of pressure that were inside of this habitat were instantly dropped to one atmosphere. Now, if you if you didn't hear our episode about uh, the treasure hunter... Mel Gibson. Mel Fisher. Mel Fisher. Different Mel. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> Mel Gibson? <laughs> if you didn't listen to our episode about Mel Fisher, where we talked about the bends and what decompression is and all that... What this happens, is way beyond the bends. This is the, yeah. This is the bends to the benzening. 
Yeah, so instead of the gas <laughs> bubbles appearing in your blood, if, if you happen to be a long-time listener of the Local Universe podcast, long time as in, like, May, in this case, rather than just the gas being affected, your whole body would be affected, wouldn't it, Will? It would. It would. In fact, your entire biological entity would be affected by this amount of pressure change. Yeah, it's like you go from being a, uh, what was it, a biological... You become you go from being a biological creature to being a creature of physics. You stop existing in your current state with this sort of pressure differential. Um, and because this is rather than a low-pressure entity being encroached on by a high-pressure entity, like you might see, say, for example, the Ocean Gate tragedy that happened earlier this year, where there's a crush depth that is reached, and everything gets crushed. This is a super high pressure, nine atmospheres, we said, entity being equalized to one atmosphere. That makes this, technically, an explosion rather than an implosion. And most people are more familiar with what an explosion looks like. So, Will, if you wouldn't care to lay on some of the details about what this explosion may have looked like. Now, let me take a sip of my yep, beer. Yep, me too, actually. Yeah, yeah, if you got a drink, fucking chug that. If you got something to smoke, rip that, unless you're going to get anxious, you know. No. I yeah, I don't need to be sad yeah, at no, no panic attacks or menti bees tonight. So, our man that was right there in front of the door, our diver, he received the full force of that instant decompression. Which, this was not his fault. No, 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 no. This he, was the other guy. Yeah. So blame, blame, ultimately fell on William Crawford, the the dive tender, for opening up the chamber before it had been fully closed and safe. So now our diver right there in front of the door gets this full blast. They said that the explosion was so powerful that his torso from the waist up, was completely uh, bisected, split Ugh. down the middle from the... The from, long way. Yes, the long way. From the nitrogen in his body expanding so fast and exploding outward. Oh my god. Like, one lung goes one way, the other lung goes the other way? Like, ba Yeah, pretty, so he... Uh, the door that he was in front of was about, it was like a three-foot circle. You have to crawl through it normally. Yeah. He was pulled in, so it bent him back through at the, the waist. Belly button first. Yes, belly button first. Ugh. And then his torso was split, but simultaneously his torso was split open that same way. <sighs> and everything... In how much time? Uh, Milliseconds. No time okay. at all. Okay. Yeah. Things okay. happen instantly. Okay. If you've That's ever better. taken a, a bottle better. of Diet Coke, put some Mentos in it, put the cap on it, and thrown it cap first at the ground, and it shoots off like that, it's kind of like that. Big yeah. pressure release suddenly. That sounds way more fun. Yeah, it's yeah. way cooler. Well, I want to do that now. I'm an adult. I can I can do that. I can buy Mentos and Coke. I can do that. Anyway, keep telling me. Yeah, so... <laughs> our, first, our first victim... Dead instantly. They said that his 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 organs, his body parts, his what was left of him was shot up to thirty feet 
through that door across the deck of this oil rig. So the guys working on the rig would have just seen this and seen just a liver go flying past them? like. Yeah, actually, great thing you said liver, because that was one of the things that they said. They found his liver over 30 feet away from the habitat, and they said it looked like it would, had been removed surgically. Like somebody just took it out and put it there. That is harrowing, dude. Yeah. And there's still three other dudes in there? Oh yeah, there's three other guys in there. But before we get to them, William Crawford, our dive tender on the outside... He received the blunt force coming outward. Of that guy's liver. Yes. Et, et cetera. Coming yes. at him. So William Crawford was blown away. He died instantly. Our first diver there, gone instantly. The other three in their chambers, they they had the bends times a million to the second power. At least times nine, yeah. Yeah. Their fate was more that their blood boiled instantly. They were flash-boiled from the inside out. Thanks, Boyle's Law. Yeah, so th- let's say three out of the four sources that I used for this to get this information um, all said that it happened instantly. Nobody would have felt anything. They would have been gone before they had any idea what was going on. But there was one YouTube video that I watched where the guy kept saying, Probably. And he said it in such a way that it was like, mm. Like, is it one of those instances where they're telling us no one felt a thing? It was instant just to make us not sad? I... I don't know. I, I get the impression. And that being said, all the sources I've ever seen regarding explosive decompression generally result in somebody saying nobody felt a thing. Same with explosive recompression. Like, again, Ocean Gate. Those guys just turned into jelly suddenly. Um, We can only hope. Yeah. As somebody who intends fully to never experience anything even remotely similar to that, let's say it's painless. I would like to believe that it's painless. I I choose to believe that. Yes. It it (laughs) makes sense that it would be painless because of how fast everything happens. But we can't really know because... You can't ask somebody what being uh, boiled from the inside is like in a millisecond. Yeah. Yeah. So those three men die instantly from this flash fry, flash boil. Yes. Uh, I believe. I... So I... If you are feeling brave, you can Google this incident, and you can see the pictures from the autopsy of the divers... Uh, warning, it's rough. Oh. Yeah, don't go in there if you had a bad day, you know? Huh. Yeah. I don't think I want to. No, you could probably skip this one. Okay. But for those of you brave enough... Although, Will, it sounds like you did. Yeah, Yeah, what did did you see? Uh, (laughs) a lot of body parts, some chunks, um... Chum, I think is the nautical term. Some chum. Yeah. Yeah, uh... I mean, I I don't really know how to explain it other than it's, it was just tables filled with human salsa. Body, yeah, yeah, human chunks. Now, this is a morbid question, but were do you know if the other body parts were also seemingly surgically removed, like they looked intact, or was it just like a slurry? So, they said that the 
The, the most notable finding was the presence of large amounts of fat in the large arteries Maybe. and in the cardiac chambers. Okay. Uh... <laughs> Is that just a diss on the guys? Like yeah, these guys, <laughs> these guys were wicked fat. These guys, they did not have any Cheerios in that habitat. These guys, their cholesterol was out of this world. Dude, if dude. you're going to be in an underwater hellscape for three months, you bet I'm eating Oreos the whole time. Like, what are you I'd buying be... with your 400k? Snacks. I definitely wouldn't be thinking that much about my heart health if that's what exactly. you're saying. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You said you would be eating Oreos, though. I would Oreos, be. Cheerios. Yeah. And Oreos. Both. I'd probably eat more Oreos than Cheerios. To be I honest. dip my Oreos in my Cheerio milk. Go on, Will. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the fats, like everything in the three divers that were intact, the, the, the fats kind of just like, it's like they expanded a little bit. Like, everything boiled and they expanded, but they didn't explode. They didn't get the same treatment that the first diver. And the the actual term that they used to for his, I guess, cause of death was gross dismemberment. <laughs> Sounds gross. <laughs> yeah. It was a yeah. disgusting dismemberment. Really I mean, is, icky. We're also, we're also talking about the UK here, and they refer to, like, you know, violent dismemberment as grievous bodily harm. Legally, GBH. So, yeah. yeah, no, that's that's a real thing, and so gross dismemberment sounds like a, a very good euphemism for having your liver thrown thirty-five feet in a without, millisecond without your consent. And the other dive tender uh, did not die. Yeah, that guy what? was just there for the show, huh? Yes, what? he was. He was very seriously injured, but he was able to walk away. What? How was he injured? In what ways? So he was right there next to the explosion, oh. but he wasn't in the direct path like Crawford was. <gasps> Interesting. So he would have had like a air concussion injury mm-hmm. from what everybody, from everyone else decompressing. decompressing. Yeah. yeah. So basically he was hit by the, the shockwave. The shockwave of it and, you know, different, some debris that was flung. Oh. Uh, like like mechanical debris from the uh, habitat. There's and, metal too, flying yeah. around, not just livers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, it's so horrible. So this was 1983 when this happened, uh, and like I had mentioned, Crawford ended up taking all the blame for this. I mean, one, he couldn't defend himself; he was dead. And two, he was the one that had basically. From the outside looking in, before any investigation had happened, he was the one that had messed up. He was the human error. He breached well, protocol. It sounds like mm-hmm. if there was going to be any human error, it would have been him. We don't know if it was mechanical or not, but if we are going to try and put the blame on a person, he would have been that person. It was his responsibility to follow the protocol, mm-hmm. and it sounds like he didn't wait for communication between the two elements of the airlock there, and... This is what happens when you don't do that. Maybe. Maybe. We we can't know. It's it sounds like this was shockingly easy to have happen based on the situation and the just the whole design of all of this. Yeah. I'm so someone that I was talking to uh that had a little bit of insight on saturation diving told me that if you have been in the business of saturation diving for 10 years, 
then you know somebody that has been either grievously irreparably injured from this or died same for same for commercial diving in general commercial diving even if you're not sat diving like if you're still going down to 100 feet for a day and then coming back up to weld down there or whatever um it is not a safe profession to be in especially if you're working out there on these offshore rigs where you're not sleeping you're not you know mm-hmm. like there's there's so many factors that go into this i i used to work with former professional divers down in florida and they had stories as well you know it's one thing to be an underwater welder if you're welding in five feet of water it's another thing to be working in 200 feet of water mm-hmm. or a thousand feet of water if you're going way way down i don't even know if that's possible but 300 feet seems to be deep enough for this sort of shit to happen so <laughs> yeah yeah i have i personally have heard stories of people who have had the bends to the point where you are bedridden for the rest of your life that sort of thing yeah it, it's, it's not it, uncommon unfortunately it's no joke it's like we were saying earlier it's almost like we weren't made for that <laughs> almost like <laughs> almost we really really comfortable at Exactly 11 pounds per square inch here on the surface. I love breathing. I sure do. Can't stop me. (laughs) So William Crawford takes the blame for this. Hmm. Now, the investigation that had been done was conducted by the Dolphin Drilling Company. Hmm. Uh, And the family members just didn't they they felt like he was that that like Crawford had been basically scapegoated. Yeah, mm. yeah. They were like, eh, no, I mean, he he messed up. It was on him. We didn't do anything. So then another independent investigation ended up coming through. Uh, that brought to light that it was a mechanical issue because the company had not been maintaining the equipment the way that they were supposed to be. They were cutting oh. corners. They were trying to mm. save money. Kind of like Ocean Gate. Yeah, yeah. So basically, these guys were put in a situation where they had done everything correct, but the equipment didn't react the way it was supposed to. That's Mm. something that I think is overlooked a lot with this sort of material. Anything that's dealing with constant stress. Yeah. Micro fractures. Little tiny cricks and cracks that happen... One time after another. Where you're talking about aircraft, you're talking about watercraft, you could be People. talking about sub- submersibles, even humans, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Anytime you're subject to immense amounts of pressure or strain, little tiny bits at a time, even if it doesn't look like it's a problem the first time or even the 25th time, that 26th time, this is exactly what happened with Ocean Gate, is when these things catastrophically fail. And based on what you've just told us, it sounds like this is another example of that sort of thing happening. This is why aircraft go through checks every time they land. This is why there are mechanics for everything that gets a lot of usage in any sort of strenuous environment. Always on call. Always ready to fix and inspect and see what is happening. Because you don't know if you don't look for them. And you won't see them if you don't know exactly where to look. Mm -hmm. And they can all contribute to something like... A catastrophic decompression happening at the expense of six lives, was it? It was five lives and one grievous injury. Not worth it. Not worth the maintenance costs that you otherwise would have put into. No. 
But they were able to kind of skirt this for about 20 years. What? Really? It, it took over 20 years for them to clear Crawford's name and get the truth out there. Uh, and family members of the deceased would come out to say that dolphin drilling killed our family. They, it was their gross negligence that did this. And then they blamed an innocent man. And how did they prove that it was that mechanical failure? Was it just because they're like, hey, you have not updated this? You haven't looked into it for X amount of time? or Because I feel like both reasons are kind of equally plausible. Like humans are fallible, just like machinery is fallible. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Did, they, did they check like maintenance records and see? Yeah, yeah. So they, they ended up having a, their own independent investigation go in that looked over maintenance logs, looked over the equipment itself. And I don't know the exact specifics. I wasn't able to find the, the dirty details on that. But mm. they were able to conclude that it was machinery, it was faulty equipment, it was cutting corners. Wow. Um, and then the Bifur Dolphin would go on to continue drilling until 2019. What? Really? Mm-hmm. Well, I assume With, they, they made, made some made a changes. new habitat and had more sat divers that were... Yeah. Do it. Imagine being the first guys after that incident to go back in. I mean, it's probably the safest it'll ever be. You're in there for three months. You're not thinking... You're not going to be thinking about how safe it is? Because at any time during those three months, you could just explode? <laughs> yeah. Well, what happened to the other guys down there? So we know there was one guy that got, you know, exploded instantly. There was another guy that caught the brunt of it. A third guy that survived. What about the other ones that were in there? Those are the guys whose blood boiled. Yeah, yeah. Those are oh, the three I'm that sorry. were flash boiled instantly. Yeah, the flash yeah. boiling. How could I forget? Yeah. So now this rig doesn't have any sat divers on call anymore. And that's the real problem. At this time. But based on their based on their maintenance record that we now know, did they care? I mean, because <laughs> it sounds like these guys were the ones doing the maintenance. They can't do the maintenance on the outside of the habitat, though. They have to be in it. So who knows? I, I would imagine that they had a separate maintenance crew that was supposed to come in and do like to compare it to, say, a helicopter. Hmm. Like, I know that Apaches for every hour of flight, they need 12 hours of maintenance. But it's not going to be the the pilots that, that are doing that maintenance. It's going to be the, it's the mechanics. Uh, yeah, 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 mechanics. So I would imagine that these divers are like, I just live in the tube. I don't know how the tube works. <laughs> Which is down, fair. I weld. I go home. Mm-hmm. They Back have the they have other things to think about. You know, like the welding and the diving and the not dying probably take up a lot of bandwidth. And whatever books they're reading at the time. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, yeah, I imagine there's a lot. Of, if you get five days of downtime after every two days of work, there's a lot of staring out that little porthole. At it's, what? It's just dark. Again, it's you're all just relative, right? At you're, blackness. you're looking at the other dudes. No, no, the Emily. I don't know if you understand this. The habitat is on the deck of the the. They're above the water. What? What? In a pressurized what? habitat. Yeah, they're in a pressurized tube. They're looking at the other guys on the oil rig, walking around eating sandwiches or whatever. <laughs> like, like, like the animals in a zoo, just in their little habitat, just doing whatever and just watching the rest of the world go by. Yep. Yeah, and getting paid a lot. Yeah, 
I thought they were underwater when this happened. Why would they need to be? They don't need to be. They can just be pressurized on land. Yeah, that way they can... Deck. That that way they were able to bring food and supplies and anything to them and not have to worry about the logistics of transporting all that underwater and yada, yada, yada. Doesn't that make it worse? That was makes there an it worse audience to this horror show? There were at least two people that were there to witness it, and one of them didn't make it. There was probably about another hundred dudes on that oil derrick that exactly. heard this or were actively drilling, doing another crazy dangerous job. And looked over their shoulder and went, whoa! And then went back to slinging chains or whatever they do on a on an oil rig. Yeah, roughnecking. <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure you mentioned this early on, but that didn't, that didn't stick. The fact that it happened on, quote-unquote, land, or at least not 300 feet down. Oh, yeah. <sighs> yeah, it makes it I'm worse, I'm having a hard it? time processing that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. How horrifying. Do you have any top five takeaways for this episode? Um, it's just money. Don't do this. <laughs> it's a lot of money, though. $378,000 for three months of work. Well, I mean... To me, you... that sounds like nine months of not work. It could mean <laughs> uh, an eternity of not work. True. If things go like this. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, don't trust companies because they're they're just out for money. They don't care about you. Um, yeah, three more, three more. <laughs> uh, well, I will say the other accidents that happened with the Bifer Dolphin, apart from this, were totally. I think one guy, uh, a piece of the rig, like fell and hit him. Hmm. and he was injured but it wasn't anything life-threatening and then the only other incident was that they ran aground one time one guy got a paper cut and hurt his little finger yeah yeah (laughs) wow yeah so i mean as far as takeaways my biggest takeaway with this is that this shit is insane i'm sorry i don't have much for it but don't don't work (laughs) offshore unless you're acutely aware of the things that can happen from it yeah yeah yikes man that's crazy. I mean, there are definite benefits to the job. Like, we're saying, like, don't ever do it. It's terrible. Like, I'm sure this is a lifestyle that some people look forward to. Like, there's plenty of jobs that are high risk. That's what I'm saying. High reward. And if you have these skills, we need that. We're in a, we're currently an oil-based society. Like, society. like, we need it. We need people to be doing this stuff. So... I mean, robots are next. Compared to the working conditions we talked about with the the Blair Mountain incident, (laughs) I would rather be working as an offshore diver than in a coal mine in the 1920s in West Virginia. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Well, people would rather go to World War I than work in the coal mines in West Virginia. Yeah, and I'd rather do this than be in World War I, to be honest. I'd say World War I, deep sea, or what is it, sat diving, and then... Coal mines? No, uh, yeah, coal mines worst. Mm-hmm. World War One. Oh, I'm sorry. Worst. Yeah, yeah. No, I world. No, World War One is worse. Oh no, coal mine. Um, coal mine no, is sorry. worse than World War One, according to those guys. Yeah. Exactly, according to those who live. And then in. sat diving of the three. Top only because if if you think, look if you look at a work contract, yeah, if you look at a work contract as how much how much bullshit are you willing to deal with in exchange for this amount of money? Yeah. 
that's a linear relationship. If it's a lot of both, is that not worth it? I don't actually know. High risk, know. high reward. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So when when you when you put it up against fighting in the trenches of World War One or being in a coal mine, it mm-hmm. definitely is the most beneficial. But it, let's say you were yeah. to put saturation diving next to being like one of the top 0.2% creators on OnlyFans. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> Not even close. No, you make way more doing the OnlyFans too. Yeah. And that's just like... Depends on what you're doing. Yeah, true. Well, if you're saying top 2%, yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. I mean, there's a lot of jobs I would rather be doing than just about anything we've discussed on this show. Yeah. I think I'd be pretty down to to be like a like a janitor for the Skull and Bone Society. I would love to be. I would yeah. love to be a treasure yeah. hunter in no. South Florida. To be honest, that yeah, that was a pretty sweet job. That was a pretty tit job. And you know what? Doing PR for Tylenol does sound pretty sweet because you just got to do your best at that point. Yeah, and especially if you you if can't you get do worse. as well as they did in that time. Boom, exactly. case study right there. Yeah. Look at that. Okay, I take back what I said. Well, anyway, folks, <laughs> thank you for listening this week. This has been a fast and loose episode of the Local Universe podcast. Fast and loose. Yup. Shooting Will, from thank the you for Easy breezy. Yup. <laughs> Will, thank you for... <laughs> thank you for doing the research you did. This is a crazy topic to talk about. Um, we're definitely going to be talking a little bit more about deep sea adventures next week uh so please tune in for that and um i got nothing much more to say so on my end please remember to keep it local keep it local folks do what you feel but if you're gonna do something right keep it local and at least get paid a lot for something terrible yeah if you're gonna do something that could kill you like real bad in a lot of horrible ways make sure you're making it what you deserve. You're worth it. You are worth it, ladies and gentlemen. All right. See you next week. Okay. Is everyone trying to I don't know.